from the dark web to your radio dial. You are listening to CyberTalk Radio on News 1200 WOAI. Welcome to CyberTalk Radio on 1200 WAI. I'm your host, Brett Pyatt, a 20-year internet security veteran, and we are here in the middle of National Cybersecurity Awareness Month with John Engates, the Chief Technology Officer of Rackspace. John, uh, so why would you be a great guest to have on to talk about Internet of Things security? Well, Brett, I've been doing this kind of stuff my whole life. I'm a, I'm a uh, internet geek. I'm a techie. I'm um, constantly playing with new devices and toys and gadgets and trying to figure out how they work and why they do the things they do. That's how I got my start. My career sort of led me uh, along that path to keep doing that as we created, you know, created sort of the foundations for, uh, you know, the internet and the uh, web, you know, infrastructure that Rackspace built. As the CTO of Rackspace, you know, my, my day job is also spending a lot of time around uh, internet and security and, you know, the uh, evolution of all the things that are going on in the market around uh, mobile devices and connected devices. Internet of Things, um, IoT, as you say, is, is really just an extension of what, um, you know, what we've been doing over a lot of years where we've had, you know, devices talking to one another uh, in, in, um, in the internet. But today we're, we're having more of those devices, our, our cars, our homes, um, everything is connected now. Yeah, so this Internet of Things is a, a new jargon term used out here in the industry. That For our listeners, this is your home thermostat is now available via a mobile app on your phone, and that's part of the Internet of Things? Or how do you, you think about those uh, home-connected devices? Is that what we're talking about? Uh, for sure. The home-connected devices are part of the Internet of Things. If you think about where the Internet came from, when I got on the Internet in the uh, maybe early 90s, um, it was really humans interacting with other humans via the internet. We were emailing each other, we were chatting with each other via IRC or, or you know, Skype or things that evolved over the, over time. But today, you have a lot more machines talking to other machines. You might have a connected uh, device in your home like a thermostat or like a lock. A lot of people are starting to want to be able to unlock the house remotely or make sure the house is locked or close the garage remotely. Those are pretty cool devices because they're very, very convenient. Um, they make our lives uh, simpler in some ways, and uh, they all have an internet connection of some sort. Um, they need to be able to communicate with you on your mobile phone, your smartphone, wherever you are, or else they're not super convenient. If you have to be in the house, it's just a remote control. But when you're outside the house, it's a true internet-connected device, and it, it uh, allows for a lot of really cool interaction scenarios like automation, where you can start to um, make things happen automatically at certain times of the day. Uh, you can uh, change schedules. You can have things detect when you're in, in uh, range of your home and, and sort of maybe turn on those thermostats automatically. But yeah, it, it, it really extends to lots and lots of things within your home. Your TV, your uh, uh, you know, Apple TV device that sits on your TV, your cable box nowadays may have an internet connection. Lots of people have Roku and all those kind of things. Um, it, it, the, you know, the mind starts to to uh, race when you think about all the things that are maybe connected to your Wi-Fi today versus what, what used to be. Yeah, I mean, basically, as is, is we're going through this, almost everything that you're buying today has an IP address and is sending data out to the internet. Uh, if you, I mean, if you think your health tracker, your run keeper on your phone, whether you're using your phone with a physical software 
or just a software app or whether you have a physical Fitbit or another device that ties into the phone to do more advanced data tracking, um, almost everything we're buying now is connected because there's advantages to that connectivity. Like you said, it's like saves me on my electricity bill because when I drive out of my driveway in the morning, my thermostat knows I'm no longer at home and it sets it to away mode. Right, right. and a lot of these devices, um, they're communicating with the internet even if they don't directly have Wi-Fi. For example, you mentioned a Fitbit. That is probably talking to your phone via Bluetooth and your phone is sort of uh, you know, acting as the gateway to the internet and data is being collected on the Fitbit and then uploaded to the phone which is then uploaded to the cloud which is another piece of this puzzle. You know, we we uh, uh, have, have started to use the word cloud for almost everything and, and that uh, can be confusing, but ultimately it, it's, a, it's a place to store data, it's a place to analyze data, uh, present that data back to the user, and those are all very powerful aspects of the Internet of Things, um, not just for the, from the consumer standpoint, but from the business that's building these devices, the, the, the makers of these devices want to have these uh, connected experiences for their users because it makes the device more interesting, it makes the uh, relationship between the user and the vendor uh, more sticky in terms of the uh, long-term aspect of it. You know, people want to come back to that site regularly to check their progress on their fit, fitness goals, and all of that makes for a better user experience, and, and uh, that's what businesses want nowadays. Yeah, so uh, I think a great example of this integrated experience is the uh, Disney World in Orlando and the magic bracelets. Have you gone down to that with your family and my those. wife and my kids went. I didn't get to go this trip. I was uh, doing a business trip, and they were going to Disney. Um, but they had the band show up in the mail before you get there. They're all customized. They all have uh, digital uh, signatures of some sort associated with the users. You can load up um, uh, you know, money on these so that you can pay for things in the park. The park knows where you are at all times because you've got uh, beacons around the, the park. Beacons are another... Uh, interesting aspect of this. Maybe we can get into that in a minute, but but it, it basically can track where you are physically. Um, even without a GPS signal, it can sort of uh, triangulate your position, what you're, you know, maybe what ride you're next to, what line you're in, how, you know, uh, all kinds of things that they can do. I don't know. Did you use them at your uh, uh, last trip? So I have a, a, a bunch of friends that are, are Disney fanatics, and they won't go to Disneyland in L.A. anymore because they've not rolled the, the magic bands out there. And they said that it just changes the Disney experience so much for them. Uh, that it's Orlando or, or bust uh, at this point. Is it's things like you're walking through the park and it can alert you of like, hey, right now there's no line at Pirates of the Caribbean, so you can you can go on over um, and hop on that ride, and it just makes your experience better. Or like they'll let you know that there's a uh, ice cream special or uh, around the corner after you get off a ride, and the temperature went above 90 degrees. They're or just those characters these... that are uh, ready for a photograph with your kids. <laughs> yes, for sure. And I think as a, as a parent, um, I haven't taken the kids to Disney before. Uh, having that magic brand bracelet on them, because uh, sometimes you're outnumbered where there's more kids than there are parents, and they choose to one runs after Mickey, one runs after Minnie. One runs after something else, and now you're wondering where the third kid went. The magic band can help from that safety and security aspect as well for the parents of the park. Right. Well, that's you know that's just another great example of Internet of Things. I mean, it's just a connected experience. Disney's using it to market to you, to sell you more, to make the experience better at the park, to track your preferences so that they can send you something afterwards that said come back for the uh, you know events that are associated with. The, all the things that you love, you know, they're they're now uh, 
uh, you know, Marvel and the uh, Star Wars uh, franchises are both associated with Disney now. And so if, if they see that you're, uh, you know, have an affinity with Star Wars, they're certainly going to market to you now because they know you rode those rides like crazy. You know, they were uh, able to track now all of your preferences in the park, where you ate, uh, you know, who you interacted with while you were there, which characters did you like. And imagine that data, all that data that's being collected by these devices is very, very valuable to the businesses that are uh, that are collecting it and, and creating it for you. Yeah, and the Disney is a one real public example where they they make it part of the experience in your your face. They sh- show you the bracelet. They tell you what the bracelet's going to do. Mm-hmm. There's a number of other businesses out there that are doing this kind of behind the scenes. They may have uh, rolled out what they call a RFID tags on the merchandise inside the store, so they know if you pick up a piece of merchandise, where do you carry it around? Do you actually put it back on the rack? Do you leave it? Do you check out with it? Um, and they'll even triangulate based off of your cell phone signal. Where did you walk in the store when you were in there? Yeah, that's um, what I was mentioning about beacons. The beacons that um, sometimes are being embedded in a retail store are designed to help them track your location in the physical store. I mean, we oftentimes think about GPS and our phones knowing where we are, but that's only so granular once you get inside of a building because you don't see the satellites anymore. But when you're in a building, you have blue, Bluetooth. Um, they, they call it low energy Bluetooth because it's a sort of a newer uh, version of Bluetooth. But the point is these beacons can sit around uh, maybe a, a retail store, maybe a large store like uh, Home Depot, Best Buy, you know, Lowe's, whatever. And um, when you get into the store, those beacons interact with your mobile phone. If you happen to have the app for Best Buy or Lowe's or Home Depot or one of these stores, it actually can interact with that app and start to track the data about who you are and where you went and which products you looked at and how much time you spent in the uh, home improvement aisle or whatever it might be. And then again, they can also create um, you know, targeted messages to you or specials or discounts or uh, sell that data potentially to their uh, vendors, their product companies that are behind uh, the products that you looked at and, and then really target you. And that's, you know, it's scary. It can be uh, creepy in some ways, but it can also be very powerful because it makes the experience better. And that's, yeah. you know, that's the that's the benefit to the user is that better, cleaner, easier, uh, frictionless experience. Yeah, with the Home Depot app, I no longer have to wander around the giant store aisle to aisle to aisle to find the uh, washer that I need to, for the bolt or thing that I'm replacing and fixing. The app can tell me exactly where it's at in which bin on which shelf and how many of them are there mm-hmm. um, as the consumer, uh, which is, is pretty powerful. It can even tell you if you're a contractor um, and you need a specific part, which Home Depot in town has it, how many they have, so you can know before you even have to go drive over there. So all of these things are, uh, it's one where I think we're making conscious sometimes and other times um, subconscious trades of privacy for usability and trading privacy for convenience, yeah. Mm-hmm. That's, that's, the, that's the trade-off that we make because the experiences that we want, we want to simplify our lives, we want to make it as easy as possible to interact with our bank and as easy as possible to pay our bill online and to uh, interact with all of our vendors and and people that we uh, that we do business with but the the flip side of that is there's lots of data flowing between those you know it's flowing through the air through uh, you know cell phone network or Wi-Fi network or uh, somehow it's getting from point A to point B and that data can be valuable to the, the good guys but it can also be valuable to the bad guys right I mean there's there's a flip side to this as well the cybersecurity when we think about national cybersecurity month there's probably a lot to think about in terms of how you're 
securing the the uh, connections between your devices and and your uh, uh, your you know your favorite vendor or, or bank. Yeah, and we will deep dive on the security of the Internet of Things uh, after the break in the middle of the hour here. The second segment will talk about some of the security risks, the implications, and because all of this ease of use and convenience, there's a dark side to everything. And if uh, we can help with this program by generating some awareness, then hopefully we limit what the uh, bad people can go out there and do with the information advantage they have right now. We want to neutralize that with our program. So we've, we've talked about um, things of the beacons, the stores, um, a drone. So if you've got a drone with a camera on it, does that count as an Internet of Things, or is that, is that something else, a whole category entirely different? I think I could put it into the category of Internet of Things because uh, sensors are a big part of the Internet of Things. When, whenever, whenever you have a device that has a number of sensors on it, uh, again, those sensors are, are constantly collecting data, and they're creating a stream of data that's got to be stored somewhere. So a modern drone, and these, you know, some people look, look at them as toys, but they're very sophisticated uh, toys if you want to put them into that category. They have computers on board. They have the intelligence to know where they physically are in the world based on a number of GPS receivers. They have cameras. They have sonar, radar type sensors to know when they're close to the ground or when they're about to run into something. Some of the new drones that you can buy uh, physically will not run into the wall because they can tell that they're about to uh, get close and, and they'll stop. Um, they have you know, sensors about the weather, the, you know, the barometric pressure, the temperature, all of those things are factors in making the drone a better product. And then um, you know, not only that, but they have a real-time connection from the remote control uh, you know, these are, um, these are not yet fully autonomous devices. These are things that you still have to control yourself. And so uh, you have to have a um, constant link between your uh, remote controller, your smartphone, and the drone. And that provides, again, for a great way for that data to be streamed and stored and analyzed and, and used in some interesting way. So the camera is just another sensor. The video camera or still camera is a very sensitive light sensor, if you will, and it creates uh, images out of that light, and, um, and it and it's typically stores them somewhere interesting for you to, to review or look at later. Yeah, so for the, the modern drones out there now, do they, um, I don't fly them or anything, do they track their flight path? Like, can you go back and see if you flew it around for 20 minutes on your phone or your computer, you can go look up later your flight path and... You can do exactly that. You can look exactly where that drone flew, how high it flew, how fast it was going, uh, it can do a um, sort of a replay of the path. You can watch it sort of on the computer and see how it uh, how it flew. In some cases, with certain drones, you can use those uh, flight paths as a way to get it to fly semi-autonomously. So you could you know get it up into the air and say, okay, I want you to fly from point A to point B to point C to point D and come back home. And once you record that path, it will do it again for you without you interacting with it. Now, you, you still have to put some input in it to get it off the ground and get it going, but from that mm -hmm. point forward, it will fly that route for you based on a path that it's recorded in the past. And then that gives you the opportunity to do more creative stuff with your drone. If you want to be a uh, you know uh, hobbyist cinematographer and you want to take a video of you riding your bicycle or driving your car down the road, well, now the drone's flying itself, essentially, and all you have to do is kind of uh, control the camera and make sure the camera's focused on what you want it to do. And some of the new drones actually will even do better than that. They have uh, human 
uh, tracking, you know, like it, it tracks the figure, the, the outline of a human. And uh, like we have face tracking on a lot of our phones nowadays, these things now will look at the uh, outline of a human and say, just keep your camera on me, follow me, uh, make sure I'm in the frame, and, and then basically you don't have to uh, even, even point the camera. So it's a flying selfie stick. Flying selfie stick. That is a good one. Yeah, okay, yeah. <laughs> it's exactly that. But, you know, it's more fun than that because it'll, you know, watch you uh, yeah. ride the bike, do the tricks, uh, you know, surf, whatever you're doing. Um, and that's what people are looking forward to, you know, forward to is really that, that uh, sense of freedom to be able to uh, use it, you know, for all the creativity that, it, that, uh, that people have in their head. They want to put, put it to work. So as this uh, Internet of Things evolves um, and we have data stored with a bunch of these different services, do you today, because you, you're using a bunch of these, do you feel like you have control over that data today? Do you know where it is and which services, what's collected, how you would ask them to delete it? Or is this uh, something that even with your level of knowledge and awareness on this, it's hard to manage right now? It's hard to manage. Uh, you know, I I feel sometimes overwhelmed at the uh, number of devices. You know, as I mentioned before, things are uh, there's more devices than ever connected to Wi-Fi or to uh, to my network at home. And regularly, uh, semi-regularly, I go around the house and I update those devices. I make sure that they uh, you know have the latest patches or whatever. I don't think most people do that. I don't think most people think that they're supposed to do that. But you know, your TV. Your, uh, uh, you know, all the all the devices that are that are connected nowadays, uh, they need, you know, you need to track the, the that data, but you also need to track where where data is being stored. And I mean, you know, you have you have accounts. You open a new account for almost everything nowadays. You put your email address in, you put your password in. Um, you know, I, I would be shocked if if most people know where their data is going, which companies are storing it, where those companies are putting it. You know, if it's in the cloud, which cloud provider is it being stored on? What country is it being stored in? Is it a company that I trust or is it a company that I don't trust? And I'm, you know, I'm equally excited about the Internet of Things, but also a little bit nervous about it because of just the, the sheer uh, risk that is associated with, you know, sort of the average user out there in the world uh, getting, getting in over their head sort of uh, uh, with this technology boom. So uh, for the average home user, as you, you think about this, is it a good idea right now to go um, start taking advantage of these, um, like ring the doorbell or uh, home cameras or uh, cameras that connect the Yeah, the the Echo device yeah, in your house, so I can say yeah, turn on my lights or um, launch Netflix on the TV in the living room and put it on this show for me. I would say uh, yes. You, the the average user can can start to do this as long as they're they're using devices that are provided by companies that are um, well-known. You know, Amazon, for example, Google, for example, Microsoft. These are all companies that take security very seriously. They have been doing a lot to uh, beef up security, make things uh, stronger in terms of encryption. Uh, they are companies that are well-versed in uh, you know, really protecting their users because they have a reputation to protect as well. It's not just about you. It's about their business and their interests and and sort of the the risk to them is if they uh, if they leak your data or they uh, you know mess up somehow that they could take a they could get a black eye 
Yeah, so Apple's a good example. It takes the, their users' privacy very seriously. They've got a, a bug bounty program in place where if you find a way to exploit the uh, iOS, the iPhones or iPads, they'll give you $200,000 for that exploit. Um, and that's on the good guy side of things. And hopefully the people that find it are motivated by that 200000 Is There's a, a article I read this past a uh, couple weeks ago we mentioned on the air as well is that uh, there's a dark web site out there offering $1.4 million for that same thing. So you could turn it into Apple for $200,000 or you could turn it into the bad guys for $1.4 million. You're listening to Cyber Talk Radio on 1200 WAI. Your host, Brett Pyatt, here with John Engates. We're talking Internet of Things. And then after the middle of the hour break, we will be talking security implications about all of this. And right now we were talking about connected devices. And we've been talking about all these little things in your house and other things. That uh, What about cars, John? Well, I think cars are probably the biggest connected device uh, that most people would ever interact with. Obviously, uh, it's one of the most expensive devices that you buy, you know, if you want to c- characterize it as a device. But uh, yeah, more and more cars are becoming connected cars. Um, you know, you have services like OnStar that GM has been using for years, which are now connecting your car to a, you know, to a network, basically, to give you services. Uh, some cars are starting to ship with, um, well, many cars ship with Bluetooth connectivity, where the, uh, the entertainment system connects to your phone. It may give you some access to streaming services, Pandora, whatnot. Some cars are shipping natively with 4G LTE, um, you know, all, yeah. always on connections to the to the cloud, so to speak, so that um, you know you have that native entertainment experience. Some cars are also starting to get software updates via uh, that same connection. Uh, for example, uh, the Tesla, which is one of the more advanced um, sort of connected cars out there. They have a, a real-time always-on connection where they can push down software updates to the, the car on a regular basis. The car actually improves over time, both from a user experience and also security perspective. Yeah. Continuous integration, continuous deployment to a car. To a car. Yes. Very much like the experience that you have with your iPhone or your Android device. I mean, you know, you, you, uh, sometimes you get a new refresh of that device. It looks different. It acts different. It's got new features. Cars are going the same direction. Cars are more and more like a smartphone or a computer nowadays than they ever were before. Uh, Many of the uh, systems in a car are based on the same technology. The the fact that you can embed um, computers in the car and make that experience better is all from the fact that we've miniaturized and made computing much cheaper, that the mobile smartphone kind of uh, era has really brought computers to everything, and now um, again, those manufacturers really want to make that experience better for their users, and they're making those cars connected cars. Yeah, I'm, my car offers a cloud subscription service where I can then hook up to my mobile app, and I can uh, remote start it, I can unlock it, I can lock it, um, and do all sorts of things. I heard there's uh, some of these cars now as well that will pull themselves out of your garage and like around to the front of your house, kind of like you talked about the drone flight path programming. That a number of car vendors will now, yeah, pull your car out for you in the morning. Right. Well, that's that's the first step toward autonomous cars. I mean, that's really what they're doing is ex- doing experiments to see what level of automation that they can push into the car using those computing uh, capabilities. You know, can you make the car drive itself? That's the ultimate goal for a lot of these companies. I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing, but it's something that they're working hard on. Certainly, from a safety perspective, that's a that's probably a good thing if we can make the car safer and and uh, less 
prone to user error, I think that's a good thing. Yeah. Yeah, humans are not amazing at paying attention all the time on the road. Especially, especially with the Internet of Things problem. I mean, we have devices in our car, phones that we're paying attention to, text messages that are coming in. So at the very same time that computing is distracting us, the computing has the potential to save us from those distractions by giving us back a little bit of the, uh, the control and the um, uh, sensors that, that would protect us from those kind of things. Yeah, the, like the lane tracking warning. There's so many sensors all over the place. Um, and I think this future is that, yeah, data and data processing. And um, we're going to continue to see the expansion of the Internet of Things as computing becomes smaller, cheaper, and faster. And uh, over time, um, they talk about Moore's Law ending, but it's not ending um, the everything everywhere computing still gets better cheaper faster um, every few years it seems sure does and I, I mean I think it's exciting to think about what uh, where computing is going how it's going to be embedded in more um, of our of our daily lives and, and just really unlimited in terms of its potential yeah so you're joining us on cyber talk radio we're going to take a break for a moment and we will be back to talk internet of things security Welcome back to Cyber Talk Radio. Uh, I'm Brett Pyatt, your host, here with John Engates, and we're discussing Internet of Things before the break, and now we're going to talk about the security aspects of all of this. So uh, one of the ones we were chatting about on the break is uh, there was a recent uh, denial-of-service attack. So John, can you walk uh, folks through just what is a denial-of-service attack to begin with, and then what's interesting about this recent one? Well, the denial of service attack is something that's perpetrated on the internet, um, trying to deny service. That's why it's called denial of service. Basically, it's a way to prevent a website or a user of an internet service from having access. Um, you know, you can bring down a website. You can um, uh, basically cause a website to not function by throwing a lot of traffic at that website. Um, you know, traffic meaning clicks, traffic meaning uh, data being uh, directed at that website. And when the, when a website gets too much data, it becomes overwhelmed and it, and it doesn't work anymore. It doesn't function. It's not able to uh, operate properly. So uh, recently, um, there was a denial of service attack targeted at a uh, journalist. Is he a journalist? Yeah, it's, a, it's one of the top security websites on the Internet. So it's Krebs on Security. And he talks about all sorts of security things going on. Right. And he was publishing a bunch of articles uh, doing some analysis about these different hacking groups. And they were not very happy with what he was publishing. Right. And he's, he's you know, a prolific uh, you know, blogger. And, and he, he basically highlights a lot of things that are going on in the security realm. And it's things that sometimes the, the bad guys or the hackers of the world just don't want surfaced, right? And so... They tried to bring down his site, and they used a very large scale, probably the largest denial of service attack that anybody had ever seen. Uh, and they used Internet of Things devices to perpetrate that that DOS attack. Uh, in this case, from what I understand, it was uh, cameras. And so, like you know, everybody nowadays wants to have a camera on their at their house that sort of records motion and and kind of keeps track of who's in the house and who's who's not home and whatnot. Um, they're great. They're a great device. I have several of them in, in the home uh, at our house. Um, great for seeing if UPS dropped off a package. Uh, great for 
seeing if the uh, you know family's home or not home or whatever. And in case of a burglar, it's great for that too. But it can also be used you know, uh, by the bad guys if they have the opportunity to take over those devices. In this case, they did. They, they basically used devices that were um, uh, you know, not secured very well. I think some of them had a default password that uh, they, they could programmatically take control of those devices and then send video data at uh, this website, Krebs website, and, and basically it brought down the website. So some of the biggest, uh, you know, uh, anti-denial of service attack vendors uh, were, were unable to really prevent this da- uh, DOS attack from happening. Yeah, I mean, they're talking about this attack as an internet scale attack and potentially a catastrophic risk to the internet backbone if these continue to escalate and proliferate. And this is driven from, um, they've been talking about gigabit connections and a number of the internet providers now offer gigabit speeds to home users. And before the internet backbone was safe because the backbone was in hundreds of gigabits or terabit speed and then the edges were you had five megabits or 10 megabits at your house. So it's a, like if you think about a, a small pipe going into then a, a larger pipe, you the small pipe couldn't flood the larger pipe. Right. Well, now everybody's house is a big pipe and the big pipe can flood the big pipe. Right. It, it's it's asymmetric in the in the wrong direction. It used to be where the big you know the big guys could uh, could absorb all that traffic because all you had was a modem. You know, in yeah. the early days of the web, um, and then you know you had a small DSL line or a cable modem. But today you're right. I mean, that now you've got way more data at the edge, and part of that is because people want to watch video. They want to watch uh, you know Netflix or or Hulu or something over their yeah. video uh, on on their TVs. They sometimes want to watch two or three streams. To do that, you have to have a lot of bandwidth. And so the cable providers and the, the uh, internet providers have really upped their game. But that has led to this: what you're talking about, which is the uh, amount of data can be just massive when, when you point it all at one, one website. No matter how big your service provider is, um, you know they can't absorb all of that traffic. They can't serve it all. They can't block it or filter it. It's just really un... un uh, untenable to to try to manage that yeah and it's one i think we'll see this evolving threat landscape uh if if more of these attacks happen some of the internet providers will start to figure out how do i block that at the edge or how do i maybe potentially hold those home users accountable for having devices on their network that get compromised Uh, this is one of my personal uh sort of beliefs but i think really users of the internet need to start to take a little bit more personal responsibility because ultimately there isn't someone out there looking out for all of your devices you know and and managing them all for you and updating them all for you i mean you sort of look to your cable provider maybe to make sure that the cable modem that they gave you is updated but you know even that um you know don't necessarily always assume that they're doing the right thing to to protect your network. Maybe you should take a little bit of interest in, is my Wi-Fi network up to date? Am I using the latest, greatest protocols? And and, uh, I mean, I know this sounds, I'm I'm using buzzwords that uh, common computer users don't don't necessarily all know, but if you're going to use these technologies, you have to at least be aware what's going on behind the scenes. You have to understand that you're potentially putting yourself at risk because, for example, those devices that I just mentioned, those cameras, if they can take over the cameras to create a DOS attack, could they not use those same cameras as a gateway to break into your home network to maybe start to sniff traffic, look for uh, you know passwords or, or collect data on your home network 
at scale, they could basically uh, vacuum up. Uh, I heard this in, on one of the uh, presidential debates a, a, a few weeks ago about vacuuming up data. This was, you know, sort of the idea that, uh, uh, you know, we need to maybe from a cybersecurity perspective do that at at, uh, at scale. But that's but bad guys are doing it too. You know, the good guys are trying to do it to protect us. The bad guys are doing it to come after us. And you know, credit card numbers are flowing around our uh, Wi-Fi networks. Our uh, personal information going to a doctor's office if you fill out a form on it. I mean, you know, some of that is secure theoretically, but it's only secure uh, if if your uh, if your machines aren't aren't compromised. You know, if if they have access to your physical uh, PC or or your laptop. Um, you know they can they could potentially see what you're typing and, and all of that stuff really uh, something I think the average user needs to start to be aware of and understand. Yeah, and this is uh, going to be with the Internet of Things piece one of these security versus usability trade offs. So now with this big denial of service attack, there's a, a push from security professionals to ask these device manufacturers to not put a default password on the devices or have a random default password on every device that maybe you, you have it printed on the little label that's on the device, but it's not the same one. So an attacker can't write a scanning or sweeping tool that just logs into every one of these cameras and compromises them to take them over. Right. Well, this is also the argument, and I know this is probably getting into, uh, you know, sort of the controversial space, but the, the same argument about having a backdoor password for devices like your iPhone or your Android, you know, they, this came up recently when uh, one of the uh, terrorists or shooters or somebody, uh, you know, had a phone oh. and the uh, FBI wanted to break into that phone to get some data. And uh, Apple, I think, said there was no backdoor. We don't have a way to just give you access to this and we're not going to put one in. And the reason I think that 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 debate's going to continue is because the backdoor password seems logical on the surface. It's like, well, why not? If you if we don't tell anybody what that password is, why can't we have a way into all of these devices? But that same backdoor could be used if somebody got that password, or if somebody accidentally leaked the password, or if somebody figured out a way to work around that password to take over every device. And imagine if we if we used a denial of service attack perpetuated based on all the iPhones in the world or all the Android devices. It would be even bigger than all the cameras. I mean, everybody's got one of these things. Yeah, and uh, my example that I love to use on this, uh, should you have a backdoor or should you not? Should you have this master key that unlocks everything? Go uh, as a listener, if you're near a computer, Google New York City elevator key. Or if you're not near one right now, that's pretty easy to remember. And the uh, New York City elevators have a master key. You can buy it online for $8 and you can go into the panel on every elevator in, every, in New York City and you can unlock it. And a bad person can do that. It's against the law to unlock it. It's not against the law to have the key. It's against the law to use the key. And But here's a great, a great uh, you know, sort of uh, example of why that, that uh, idea of the master key, you know, you mentioned that you can go buy it. Someone actually uh, was able to create their own key from a photo of one of those keys that was published online. Somebody was talking about, I think this may have been the uh, TSA uh, uh, master key for all the, the luggage locks or something like yes. that. But somebody was talking about these keys and, and you know maybe in a PR setting they were doing being interviewed. They showed a picture of it and somebody 3D printed the key used, based on a photograph. And 
you know, that can never be put back into the box. That is out of, you know, there, there's no way to get that back. Once it's on the internet and it's leaked, anybody can print that now or anybody yeah. can sell that key. Yeah, and if it's a, a criminal, they are already doing things against the law. So using a key that's against the law is not going to slow them down because whatever crime they're going to plan to commit with that key probably has stronger penalties than whatever the crime is for having or using the key. So, right. And that same thing, you know, we, we, we use the word key in the physical sense, but that same thing happens in the digital world, that there are keys all over the place. Your password is a key of sorts. Your uh, certificates, when you're interacting with uh, secure websites. Those are all keys. And, you know, we need to think as a society about how we protect ourselves and uh, what level of access we want to create that, that is provided by some sort of a master key. And it really is uh, something that um, I think is going to continue to be debated and, and, um, and discussed. Yeah. So we've got these cameras. We have these Internet of Things devices, or maybe it's your refrigerator or your thermostat at your house. Uh, the camera can observe things. It can observe bad things. There's sites out there on the Internet where you can go watch people's houses, which is really creepy. creepy. And um, yeah, not not good. That's what one of the passive things the attackers kind of do with this. Your thermostat, if you can control that remotely, potentially could cause harm to kids or dogs or things that are in the house that don't know how to manage the thermostat themselves. If someone were to hack into my thermostat and turn it up real hot, it would be bad or turn it down real cold. Um, your refrigerator, I guess they could turn it on or off or adjust the coldness settings and freeze your food. But those things are, are kind of moderate to low risk. Mm -hmm. But now we talk about cars being Internet of Things. These... Uh, Uber has uh, full self-driving cars um, piloting now in uh, Pittsburgh, I believe. This uh, Carnegie Mellon team that they hired out are, are working on that now. Thoughts about where this is going to head? Because Internet of Things getting compromised, the Internet denial of service attack, low to medium risk again. But now we're going to have, as you said earlier, a 5,000-pound object that can drive itself. Right. Well, I think you can always play out these scenarios um, and someone will eventually play out some of these scenarios. I mean, there are cars today that uh, researchers are, are proving they can take over the car while it's driving down the road. They can uh, interact with the car to put on the brakes, to change the air conditioning. There was a, a, a connected car. They were able to turn on the air conditioner remotely and run the thing basically uh, out of uh, battery because it was an electric car in this case. Um, if you could, uh, you know, turn on and turn off the windshield wipers, turn on and off the air conditioner. You, I mean, there's all kinds of things you can do with a car. And if you do that at any level of scale where you're doing it uh, to a lots of cars all at once, well, that's a real risk to not just the, the driver, but also the economy because the, you know, the cars are now stranded on the side of the road or stranded on the, on the highway and snarling traffic. So, you know, these scenarios, um, we really need to uh, push the, the manufacturers. We need to make sure that we're paying attention to which, which companies are doing it right and which ones are doing it wrong uh, and, and make sure that we're holding them accountable for all this stuff because it really does matter. I, when you, you were talking about the uh, air conditioners a moment ago, I wanted to uh, go back to that for just a second. I just imagined a scenario where a connected thermostat across you know, thousands of homes within a city was all of a sudden dialed down to or dialed up to maximum, what would that do to the electrical grid? I mean, you know, we're using, we're already using smart thermostats as a way to uh, turn off 
these devices at sort of peak periods of the day, you know, when the electrical grid is strained, some of our uh, uh, devices are able to shed uh, demand and, and basically not stress the grid. But the reverse is also true. If those devices could be used to strain the grid uh, at an at a inopportune time, that could potentially cause real significant problem if, if you did that at a very large scale. Yeah, a massive blackout. I mean, and these are the type of things that security professionals are out there thinking about or a device manufacturer. And this is one where, you, as a consumer in your shopping, you should be thinking is about is does the company you're going to buy from have the security team to be thinking through the things John and I are discussing here so that you're going to be safe and in, in, as a family and an individual, but you're also not going to contribute maybe to a, a greater problem out there as well. Right. I, I see uh, that as, as something that almost every consumer can evaluate. I mean, if you have heard of the company before, you know, it's Google or it's Amazon or it's Microsoft or it's some, you know, large company that has a lot at stake, those people probably do have some sophistication and some capabilities around uh, preventing threats and, and problems. The risk is if you buy from somebody you've never heard of, it's some brand new little uh, company or it's a company you know, maybe based in China or somebody that uh, doesn't really have the wherewithal to mount a security defense or just doesn't care because there's very really little risk to the company, right? A lot of yeah. times uh, these companies don't have a reputation. They don't have much to lose. People aren't ten, you know, really evaluating them based on security. They're just sort of saying, hey, it looks like a fun little product. Let's buy it. So cheap isn't always good in these kind of scenarios. And uh, you know, oftentimes we, um, you know, we just, uh, uh, you know, buy whatever, you know, is, is on the shelf, but do a little bit more research and make sure that you're buying from somebody who, who really understands cybersecurity. So as we move to additional connected sensors uh, and this awareness of these beacons, so now we've, we've talked about some of the in front of the scene compromises, but now what about behind the scenes compromises? So if, a, if I'm an attacker and I'm getting into the uh, GSM network or I'm getting into uh, that retailer that's tracking the beacons, um, what type of things I mean, are they doing with that data and the knowledge of where people are at, what they're doing, what type of risks are those creating for each of us out there? Well, I think uh, certainly they potentially have the ability to track you physically. They know if you're at home or not. I mean, this is this is a common one. Uh, you know, if, if you know that uh, I'm not at home and nobody's at home, well, then that means you could go and break into the house without a lot of risk. If you have the ability to uh, see a camera in my home, you know where to go to find the, the good stuff, right? And you know that I'm not there to protect it. Um, you know, I, we had a at our house. We had a um, we had a little bit of a blackout the other day during a storm. And you know, the Internet of Things doesn't work when there's no power. All, everything just shuts down, basically. Uh, all your devices, your your uh, that's another risk that we have to think about. Um, it's not a security risk per se, but but uh, you know, just imagine that the the bad guy um, you know wants to break into the house. All your cameras go offline when you've shut the power off, and it's pretty easy to shut the power off to a house, right? Um, you know, a lot of us don't think about the, the battery backup aspect of it. I mean, sometimes the cable modem is backed up because it's required from a phone perspective. If you're getting your phone via your cable, they sometimes put a battery in it. But that would be about the only thing that might stay on for a few minutes if they cut the power. Um, and, you know, those are, 
they're not cybersecurity risks, but they're security risks in the in the physical sense. If your alarm system is you know based on all this technology and sensors, and they just go dark on you, um, you know that's that's a that's a problem. Yeah, it sounds like I need to add a camera back by my electrical main jumpers, and then I guess all I'll see is, though is the um, criminal coming in waving at me while they flip the flip power the main, and it's going to be all over after that. It's going to go dark. Go dark. I mean, you know, I. It, it, do that experiment, maybe. You know, someday go flip the power off on the side of your house and see what happens. You know, it, it, you know, not not only will all the clocks be blinking uh, twelve o'clock, but you know, you will you will find out what doesn't work anymore in your home. I mean, you you uh, your alarm system nowadays, if you have a modern alarm system, it may be backed up with a battery and it probably has some sort of a cell phone network. So that's a good thing, but uh, but not a lot works in the house anymore. And, and the more we integrate with that like switches and outlets and uh, devices that we sort of come to rely on when the internet goes out or the power goes out those sort of start to fall apart so let's uh, you know also think about how we uh, how much we rely on those things before we go too deep yeah I mean that's another one you mentioned the uh, internet of things the electrical switches now so um, I've seen I haven't consumed yet but there's a, an app i can get from my android phone that ties into some of these electrical switches that can let me turn lights on and off in different rooms in the house or turn whatever's plugged into that electrical outlet on or off uh, which creating another risk i mean there's out there you're browsing you're getting malware on your phone now that attacker controls your phone and potentially from controlling your phone they can pull your car out of your garage they can turn lights on and off in the house they can lock and unlock your front door they can do all sorts of things because our phone is really turned into this internet of things smart hub a gateway controller for us. If you want to see this play out on television, there's a fun show called Mr. Robot. I don't know if you've watched that one, but it's a it's a hacker show. It's a cybersecurity kind of a fantasy show, but it's it's a, it's very interesting to see how uh, they've taken all of these things that we're talking about and utilized them in the story. Uh, and and it's you know it's it's a neat way to see you know sort of the the dark side of what we're talking about here. But uh, check it out. Yeah, no, I think Mr. Robot is a, a very good program. Um, it's PG-13-ish safe for your, your kids. I don't know that I would show it to a six-year-old, uh, but if you've got teenagers around the house and you're giving them a cell phone now and you're letting them out on the Internet, I think it may be one uh, to sit down and watch a few episodes with the uh, the kids to just help raise both your security awareness as well as the awareness of your, your kids that you're letting out there into this uh, Internet playground. Yeah, no, I, I agree with that. I think the kids... You know, sometimes they get ahead of us in terms of the technology. They start to do things, but they don't really always understand the context in which they're operating and where that data goes themselves. And so it probably makes sense for folks to start to really think about how they educate their kids on uh, not just the fun and you know interesting, cool part of, of using certain apps and devices, but also the, the risks and the downsides and have some rules around that stuff. I mean, you know, I, I, we can't protect kids from everything, but we can certainly... Uh, give them some foundational guidance to make sure that they're safe. Yeah, because uh, you've got that teenage invincibility. Um, everybody has it. Yeah, uh, every teenager thinks they have it, anyways. That's right, and you know, and uh, you know, in the, in the age of selfies and uh, you know everything being shared on social media, uh, they don't really realize how permanent all that stuff is once the the photos leak or once the data is out there. Uh, and that you know that uh, again goes for all kinds of things. I mean, if you have a uh, camera in your home and it's always on that means that the data is always being stored somewhere it's being streamed somewhere anything that you say anything that you do anything in front of that camera i noticed um, the other day 
there was an article about uh, Mark Zuckerberg, the CEO of Facebook. He has a uh, piece of tape over the camera on his laptop. He has a piece of tape over the, the microphone on his laptop because there are people who have been known to take over those and use them uh, as a way to monitor you or take photos of you surreptitiously, you know, surreptitious uh, photos, you know, kind of, of, of what you're doing. And, and imagine that being used against you, uh, you know, potentially to uh, threaten you or to extort money from you or uh, to embarrass you, you know, and, and those things can be really a, a big problem for, for almost anybody. So, you know, again, take, take care of whatever's connected in your world, uh, whether it be a laptop or a tablet or a device of any sort. Yeah, uh, absolutely good tips. So uh, we've talked through a lot of these things. If folks wanted to learn more, we'll uh, post a recap of this up on cybertalkradio.com and link some resources from there. John, do you have anything that comes to mind, though, of places you would go to read about uh, security news or Internet of Things news? Well, I, I read a website called Hacker News all the time. Hacker News is, uh, is just an industry stream of, of great articles that are going on. Tech Meme is another one I read all the time. You know, those are probably pretty prevalent in our world. Um, but they're great for consumers. They're great for people that want to just keep up with what's going on in the world. Facebook itself has lots of uh, great people to follow out there that keep up with a variety of topics. I mean, you, you'll find them. You'll, you'll gravitate to whatever you're interested in. But cybersecurity is probably one that we all ought to tune into a little bit more than we have in the past because it affects us all. Whether we know it or not, it's a real, uh, a real part of our lives, and we're all going to have to get a lot smarter on it soon. Yeah. Thank you very much for joining us today. I've been here with John Engates, the CTO of Rackspace. We've been talking about the Internet of Things and the Internet of Things security on CyberTalk Radio on 1200 WOAI.